0: The box will be filled. I, I can pretty much guarantee it. So as we begin the new year, um, we're going to start a new sermon series and we're going to study the book of Colossians. It's only four chapters long. Uh, my Bible, it's, you know I don't have a large print edition because I'm not that old yet. But I uh, that was bad. I'm not making fun of anyone that has a large print. I, some of you could be visually impaired. I did not mean that as a dig. I'm sorry. Um, but what I was trying to get at is that in my Bible, it's only like two and a half pages. So in my two and a half pages, it's just it's a small letter, small book of the Bible. You can read it multiple times during the week, and we're going to be in it for about fourteen weeks. And in it, um, if if you would if you would squeeze the book of Colossians, Jesus would drip out. It's the most Christocentric or Christ centered book in the New Testament. It oozes Jesus Christ, and so we're going to spend fourteen weeks seeing how Jesus. Um, through Paul, how Christ is the center of all of these issues. Um, since I've been here for almost a year now, we've went through one gospel, through the gospel of Mark, just trying to put Jesus as central. Jesus is what we're about. He's everything. He's what we're going to talk about constantly. If, if we come to church and there's a sermon that doesn't mention the name of Jesus, it's not a sermon. You listen to a nice lecture. They should all drive to Jesus Christ. Well, then we spent some time in the book of Acts. How did the church grow? It was in reaction to the life of Jesus Christ. And then we went through the Christmas Advent season trying to connect the Old Testament to the New. Saying that in the Old Testament of the promises of Jesus, all the promises of Jesus are fulfilled in his coming. Well, now we want to get kind of practical. We want to get a little more, how do we live that life? So it's great. We've learned all about Jesus. He's central. He's everything. The church grows when it talks about Jesus and it makes him central. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that when your marriage is going off the rails? How, how do you pray? We pray every week. We talk about the importance of prayer. We believe in prayer. But what's it mean to pray? How does God hear our prayers? What's it, what, how does that work? Well, we're going to study the book of Colossians because Paul is addressing all of these issues in this small church in its city triplet. And we're going to expose that all. We're talking about biblical manhood, and biblical womanhood, parenting child-rare, we're going to do it all. We're going to talk about everything. Work, false teachers inside the church, people who claim Christ, but they teach false doctrine. We're going to talk about false teachers outside the church. Other religions that try to say that they are a way to... We're going to talk about it all in 14 weeks. It's going to be awesome. Now, in my hope to equip you, as we're talking about very practical things, I've done a couple things. One... Um, not to get into New Year's resolutions and to make you all depressed on January 2nd when the resolution doesn't work. Um, but if you go to faithlife.com, I've, t- I've mentioned this app before. The free Android and Apple app. It's better on an Apple device, but it's okay. The Life app is free. It's the ESV study Bible. You get the study Bible notes. You get all the great stuff. Well, in it, there's a function where you can be part of a Bible reading plan, a group. And in it, I set up First Christian Church. So if you go here and you log in, do all the thing, then you, you can be a part of our group. And in it, you can put notes. You can ask questions. Um, if you don't like any of this technology stuff, that's perfectly fine, too. But a lot of us are into it. So I thought it would be a way we could share this. And in it, what I like is that if you have in the back of your Bible one of those plans that has, like, all the check boxes, you know, like People, I know most Christians, they try to read through the Bible in a year. And I'd say 95% fail. And they get depressed and they feel guilty. Just like when you say you buy that, you know, you got that treadmill for Christmas because you're in the new year. You're going to run on it a bunch. And then it becomes a really cool place to hang your clothes on because those bars are nice for hanging clothes. Right? We all feel that way. Well, the same thing happens in our Bible reading. I'm going to read it. And then we get to numbers and we quit. Or we get to a tough part in Genesis and we just give up. Well, this app and in your those little check boxes, your salvation isn't secured in the amount you read the Bible. You're secure in your salvation when Christ captures your heart. Reading the Bible is a way to grow more in love with Him and for your life to be more centered on Him. So, if you miss three or four days, don't tell anyone. I won't tell anyone. I won't tell you when I do it. Just hit the box and check that you read it and catch up and move on. It's guilt-free. It's like Splenda that won't cause carcinogens to enter your body. It's totally guilt-free. Just push the buttons and say, and catch up. Because I would hate for you to get depressed in three weeks of Bible reading and say, I'm done. Just give yourself a catch-up and move on. And then you'll get to a place in your walk where you're going to read the book of Numbers and go, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Okay, So I set it up, we can do it, and I've also done a couple things. Um, If you have a link to our Facebook page, there's a book called um, Hope and Glory, and it's by Sam Storms, terrific author, and it's a 100 daily devotions to the book of Colossians. And I will post a new one every day, I'll put the link to the church's Facebook page, you can get to it if you don't like Facebook, I don't blame you, it's often awful, Um, but you can just click to it and go through and get the page. And it's just a daily, one-page reading. It's an encouragement through the book of Colossians. Okay? So I'm I'm just trying to lay out in the new year as we go through this book that the Bible is infinitely practical. It's It has all the information you need to live your life. Um, And together as a family, we can do some great things for the kingdom. Okay? So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Um, Thank you for the space we have where we can come and we can study your word. We can lift up your name in praise which we've done amazingly today, and then Lord, we can open up your word and we can praise you through your love letter written to us. Open our eyes, open our ears, and help us to see you everywhere. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to start our study in the book of Colossians in the book of Revelation. Now, this is, if you remember the first sermon I ever preached here, when I came before you decided you liked me, um, I kind of preached part of this. Um, we started in the book of Revelation because I said if there was one sermon that I had to give to you and you rejected me and we never came back, it was that the hope of your glory is found in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And so I started this in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, the letter written to the church in Laodicea, and I took us into the book of Colossians. And I went through chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 to like 29. So we're just going to go to 8, so it should be infinitely shorter, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So, the point is, this letter to the church in Coloss, like I believe that the Bible holds answers. I don't think that it's just something we read to study as a history textbook. I believe that in it we find ourselves, we find a mirror that reflects our own weaknesses, and we find the strength that Jesus is the answer for our weakness. So in the book of Colossians, this letter, we see this thing happen in the same church in Laodicea. So Laodicea is here, if it works. That's Laodicea. And then you have Heropolis and you have Colossus. So you have this, these sister cities, this city triplet that existed in Turkey. And they all are dealing with the same thing. Um, they all have the same issues. They're very culturally connected. A Gentile place where Jews have moved in and converts, Christians have moved in, have moved into this area. So we have in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaking through John, we have this letter written to the church in Laodicea. So you have this very wealthy place, a very independent wealthy place and there's a letter written to one of the churches the church in Laodicea. There's seven letters the red cities are all the cities you'll see in the first in chapter 3 of Revelation but we're going to focus on the one in Laodicea. So if you look verse 14 and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. So what what Jesus is saying, this is Jesus speaking through John in a vision. And he's write this letter and take it to Laodicea. Jesus is saying exactly who he is. The words of the amen. You know, when we say our prayers, we close with amen. That's the sealing. That's Lord. That's God in charge. That's, we seal it with an amen. God's will be done. He's in charge. So when Jesus says, write to the church the words of the amen. I am the final authority. I am the final say, I am the end of your prayer. I'm in charge." It says two, the true witnesses, the people that re- I'm the true witness that God is real. I'm God in flesh. And he says, the beginning of God's creation. We know from John chapter one, and we know from Colossians chapter one, we'll get there eventually, that all of creation was spoken into existence by Jesus, Jesus. So you have the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father ordains everything. Jesus spoke it into existence. So when he says this, this is a big deal. This isn't, hey, this is Jim Bob down the road, church leader. Got something to say. This is creator of the universe, speaker of into existence, the final word, listen. So Jesus says, listen. I know your works. You are neither hot. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He's calling them lukewarm. If you were cold, unbelievers, I would understand why you're this way. I'd understand and I I would pour grace and I'd share the gospel and you would return and repent and come to me. If you were hot, you understood the depths of Jesus, you're on fire, you shared his name, that's how it should be. But you're not, you're lukewarm. So you make me sick. The word I spit you out of my mouth isn't like just spitting out because there's something you know, floaty in your water. The, word, the Greek word is translated to vomit. You make me sick. I w- I wanna, you make me want to throw up. So he's writing to this church. He's writing to this church saying, the way you act makes me sick. Well, what's that? What's Jesus doing? Well, he's using the city of Heropolis... This is the city Heropolis. Remember, it's one of those triplet cities. And the white is the sulfur field. And you see some of the water down in the pools. So you have these sulfur pools that existed in Heropolis. Much like what you see at Yellowstone. Sulfur pools. Sulfur baths. Thermopolis. Go get your you know, soak on. right? Go over to Saratoga and then get ice cream. That's what everyone does, right? You soak in the water. Go get some lovely ice cream. Cotton candy is the preferred flavor by my family. So you go over and you do... Well, I didn't have an idea of what this was like until we went to Yellowstone. A little bit going over to Saratoga once, but when we went to Yellowstone this summer, I got a real understanding of sulfur pools and the stench that exists to the point where you almost hold your nose or my kids run through the sulfur cloud to get through. So you you have to picture these sulfur pools in Heropolis. And then you have the city of Colossus, which has cool water springs. And in the middle is Laodicea. They carried water from the mountains in. These stone, you can look up archaeological digs, they're finding them. They're, they look like they're stone aqueducts. And so the water in Laodicea was contaminated by the sulfur pools in Heropolis. So when you watch Old Faithful spill and blow up and it runs and trickles down, that eventually gets into your water table and that's what you drink at your house. So when Jesus says this, he's speaking very clear terms to these people, what they would have known every day. That you're not, if you're hot, you can soak in the sulfur spring and it's for medicinal purposes. If you're in the cool water of Colossus, then you have cool drinking water. But you're Laodicea and you get the stinky sulfur water that's not good for anything. So he's using very clear terms to them saying, you make me sick. You're like your own water source. You can't stand it. Well, I can't stand you. So he's paraphrasing. Were you hot for bathing or cold for drinking, you'd be useful. But as it is, I feel toward you the way you feel toward your water supply. You make me sick. Now, wouldn't it be a great thing to tell a church? You know what? You do some great things. You seem okay, but you really make me. So this is Jesus, Lord of it all, telling a church, you make me sick. Well, why? Like, what's going on? What are they doing? That makes him so upset. Continue on. Verse 17. For you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire. So that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solved to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In this area, they had a couple things going for them. Number one, it's a major trade route. The Roman road went right through this area and it went into the rest of the Middle East. This place is filthy rich. So rich that when the earthquake in AD 17 wiped out Laodicea, the place is destroyed. When when FEMA arrived with help, the city of Laodicea said, we got this. We don't need your help. We have enough money, enough resources. We don't need your government help. Stay away, Rome. We'll rebuild it ourselves. We'll make it better. that's exactly what they did. Very self-sufficient, independent people. One of the things they traded in was black wool clothing. There were black sheep around Laodicea. And so they they traded in this very expensive black wool clothing. They also, next to them, because of the, the minerals in the area, there was this salve that was put on eyes to help with eye ailments. It was to help with hearing ailments. So they had this ointment that was produced specifically here. So when Jesus speaks to them, he says, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He's speaking this to people that wear the best clothes, have the best medicine, the best hospitals. And he's saying, you're poor and you're blind. And he tells them, I can't, you should be buying gold refined by fire from me. Instead of having your black woolen clothes, you should have the white clothes of righteousness that I provide. And instead of putting all your faith and trust in this medicine that you make over here, you should put your faith and trust in me. Because I'll open your eyes to see the truth. He's shooting them right in the chest of their self-righteous, independent, I don't need anybody. Isn't that like how we all are? I don't know if the White House has a red phone anymore. I just remember all the 80s movies. There was a red phone in the White House, the emergency phone. Isn't that how most of us act like when it comes to Jesus? Life's great. Things are fine. Things are going terrific. And then we get bumped. Our child is sick. Our wife is upset with us. Job looks bad. Economy takes a tank. And then we run to the red phone. Emergency, Jesus, I need you. Thank you, Jesus, for solving everything for me. Thank you, Jesus, for being there. Okay, I'll catch you next time. Click. And we just do our whole lives on our own. That we don't see that The people we have a relationship with, the people we do life with, the people that are around us, that they all need Jesus. That we need Jesus to function every day. How sad is it when in a family your child goes crazy at 15, 16, 17, teenage years, and that's the moment that you're finally brought to your knees to pray for your kids. That you haven't been praying for them since they were in the crib, all the way through grade school, all the way through middle school, that you've been bathing them in prayer and you've been speaking the gospel in their lives. You wait until things go crazy at 15 or 16. Well, all of these answers, we're going we're to see how to act in all those ways in the book of Colossians. Because if the church in Laodicea has these problems, the church in Colossus has the same problem. But there is hope. Jesus tells them, those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and him with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and set down my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Jesus, he never says you're too far gone. What he says is, I'm standing here, let me in. Let me help you with these things. Let me be the source of power you need to fight these things. If you just white knuckle grip, like if your resolutions coming into the new year are about white knuckle gripping, do, doing it all on your own, that you're gonna be in a bad place. If you just white knuckle, grab a hold of your marriage, and you're just gonna, I'm just gonna fight through this and I'm gonna, we're gonna win. And you, what power source are you striving upon? Yourself? So Jesus says, if you let me in, let me come to the table. Let me eat. It's a picture of intimacy. Let me be part of the family. Come to Thanksgiving meal. Sit across the table. Let's talk. Let me be part of your life. Let me have say in every area of your life, not just when it's an emergency. Jesus wants to be there for every piece of our life. So from Laodicea, we go to Colossus. So you see the sister cities up in the top right corner. And we see in the end of Colossians, in chapter 4, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, the author of the gospel and the author of Acts, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. We don't have Paul's letter to Laodicea. We don't have that letter. What we do see is a very clear picture that the letter that Paul's writing to Coloss to the Colossians, he's saying, take that to the Laodiceans. They need to hear this as well. So if we're going to read everything through the lens of this book, and we want to be selfless instead of self-centered, we want Christ to be central to our marriages instead of ourself being central to our marriages. If we want to be for our kids instead of against them in times of trouble, Then we need a solution. If we want to be reliant on Him instead of thinking we've got it all figured out, then we need a solution. So if Laodicea has problems of selfish, I don't need Jesus' problems. Then Colossus has the same. So when we study the book of Colossians, we're going to see how to live lives that are Christ-centered. That's why we start in Revelation. Colossians chapter one. We start with a greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Short, succinct. Oh, by the way, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. I'm not just a disciple. I've seen Jesus. An apostle is someone who's spent time and seen Jesus. Paul was knocked on his knees by Jesus. Verbally, audibly, heard him speak. Jesus spoke to him. So when Paul's writing this, he's not saying, hey, this is Jim Bob." guy from his church down the road. This is is Paul saying, I've been with Jesus. I have something to say. Then he says, by the will of God. Was Paul seeking after Jesus? Was Paul trying to get saved? No. God reached down and grabbed him. So by the will of God, I'm his servant. And I'm with Timothy, our brother. He's eventually going to be the past for the church in Ephesus, and Paul's going to write a couple letters to him as well. Continue on to the saints and faithful brothers in, church, uh, in the church at Colossus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. To the saints, to the saints, he's writing a letter to the church. So when he writes this, Paul does this, and Philippians is the only positive letter uh, that Paul wrote. All the other letters that Paul wrote, he said these things to the saints. To the holy ones in greek to the holy ones you're great you're holy now stop sinning to the holy ones to the christians knock it off how do i knock it off he drives you to jesus so you should have hope in this that when you come to a saving faith in jesus christ it doesn't mean you're perfected in a moment we're a life in progress it's called progressive sanctification there's progress And you're slowly being turned into more and more like Jesus. And it takes your whole life. I pray and hope that five years down the road, you're not struggling with the same things you struggled with five years ago. But does that mean all struggle and doubt and worry is going to go away? Of course not. Of course not. Anybody that preaches that to you has not read their Bible. I mean, Paul himself talks about the thorn in his flesh. If Paul's got issues... Why would you be surprised by yours? So he continues to write to the saints and faithful brothers, grace and peace to you. He sends this nice greeting, grace and peace, grace and peace. Then he continues. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you see that you see the faith, hope, and love, faith, love, and hope. It's switched. We'll get to that in a minute. Paul uses this a lot in his letters the end of um, 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding verse, love is patient, love is kind, which has nothing to do with weddings, but it's another sermon. Then you get to the end where he says, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. There's a consistent theme throughout all of Paul's writing about faith, hope, and love. When the letter to Colossians, he flips it. He always puts the emphasis on the end. The faith, hope, and love. In Colossians, the issue is they didn't love each other. They weren't taking care of each other. In Coloss. Did I say Colossus? In Corinthians, in Corinth, they didn't love each other. In Coloss, they have no hope. They put their hope in themselves. So here he's saying, your faith in Jesus, you love each other. This church loves each other well. They take care of each other, but they put all their hope in themselves. They put all their hope in themselves. So when something goes wrong in church, they just take care of it. They don't put any hope that Jesus is the solution. So Paul's going to address that. Your hope must be in Jesus. Maybe it will switch. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love and the Spirit. So this long greeting, he's speaking great things to them. He's telling them, like you, you're doing a good job. You're faithfully expanding the kingdom. You're sitting under the Word. You're growing in the gospel. So this isn't this isn't a group of people that are just way off the deep end. They're lukewarm. They're doing good things. They're they're growing, but they they don't put their hope in Jesus. They think they've got it all figured out. And isn't that what happens all around us? We grab that hotline whenever we need it. And afterwards, just, you can't have that part of my life, Lord. I got this figured out. And don't we do that as a nation? We'll just over-educate people and everything will be perfect. We'll just put alarms on our houses and no one can break through those. We'll just put locks on the doors. No one can jimmy that. We're, we're just going to make sure we put, let's put a military shield all around the country with missiles and radars and systems. No one can get us here. I'm, my marriage is fine. I don't, need to, I don't need to put Christ at the center of my marriage. We got married. We're committed. We did some vows. Nothing's going to get in my way. No temptation is going to come my way that's going to make me think of someone other than my wife or someone other than my husband. No, that's not good. That would never, not me. My kids are great. Straight A's. They do good things. They serve over there. They're never going to end up in doing something they shouldn't or in trouble until you get the phone call. And then your whole world is rocked. Right? Because you, f- you feel that you have to be in control. I've got this. And instead, the posture of a follower of Christ is, I'm going to serve him. I'm going to parent well. I'm going to be a husband that's going to serve Christ and love my wife. And then when things are rocked, my first isn't going to be, oh, what am I going to do? My first is going to be, Jesus, how do I do this? I can't function this way. Like Your relationship should be God first, your love of God first, then your spouse, your husband, your wife, then your child, then work. Well, church, then work, for me it's the same, so I always confuse those, and then everybody else. And when your relationship with Christ is right, then you can love your wife well. You guys know me this much in the last year. Do you think that Amber could put up with me without a centered relationship in Jesus Christ? Of course not. My kids are eight and five. They haven't done anything too crazy, but there are days where I just throw my hands in the air and go, What? You did that to your sister? You did that to your brother? Jesus, help me. How do I parent them well? How do I show my daughter grace when I really want to just spank her like crazy? How do I show her grace? How do I show my son the wisdom when he's asking all these huge questions? He's got such an empathetic heart that when he hears of things in the world, it crushed. How do I speak to him? I can't do that on my own. I just can't. So Paul's telling them, you guys have got this. Epaphras has said that you get it. This man that probably was converted in Ephesus, he comes to Colossus, he shares the gospel, he spreads it to them. Jesus made central on this church but they're starting to miss it. They've got good times. there's not been anything really shake them. they feel they've got it all under control. And I'm telling you that we're all one phone call away from our worlds changing in an instant. And Paul's concerned with them. If you've put all your hope in yourself, you're always going to let yourself down. Jonathan Edwards, stealing a quote from him be assiduous which means diligent or um, put lots of effort into it be tenacious about this in reading the holy scriptures this is the fountain which all knowledge is divinity in divinity must be derived therefore let not this treasure lie by you neglected every man of common understanding who can read may if he please become well acquainted with the scriptures and what an excellent attainment this would be and so we're going to go for, for 14 weeks. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to put on you this weight that if you're not reading the Bible every day, then you're a fool. You're not really a Christian. I'm not going to put all that on you, but in 14 weeks, I would love to challenge you just to spend time in the book of Colossians, just to spend time in one letter, four pages of scripture to get on Facebook every now and then or get on the website and link to it and just get this little devotion I'll put up just spend time in God's word. I've not met anyone who actually spends real time. Like really seeking. Like what do we do when we when we're going to buy something like over Christmas? I know it's this is this is across genders. Men and women both, we're research fanatics over things, aren't we? I'm going to buy a new car. I'm going to get the Consumer Report and the J.D. Power, and I'm going to read this. I'm going to watch some YouTube clips on how that thing doesn't flip when it's here and it's safe and here's this. I'm going to buy a new TV. Well, just go down to Walmart and buy the one you want. No, no, no. I'm going to take a picture of it and the model. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to see if it's cheaper on Amazon, and I'm going to research it ad infinitum. I'm going to research it constantly. I'm going to get a new piece of sports equipment, a new snowmobile, a new whatever. We're going to research it all day long, find the cheapest deal. We do all this. Now, when it comes to things of life, how often do we go to this book for that? I think your life deserves the same amount of search and trying to figure things out as does your next toy purchase. I think it deserves at least as much effort as that. When you can spend a half an hour on Wikipedia researching something crazy, like some conspiracy theory, and you spend no time in the scriptures... I think if we all spent time together in this book and we committed to say, this is the lens. Because I've seen it happen the opposite. I've I've literally had people sit down across a table from me and say, you know, I read this one part in here and it says that God wants me happy. And my husband doesn't make me happy anymore, so I'm leaving him. You got that out of the scriptures? Yeah, it says right here happy. I think you took it out of context. And so I have a serious conversation with this person. I go, look, I, I get that you're reading the Bible and you feel this presence speaking into your life, but it's not God. He's not going to contradict himself in the scriptures. That's Satan. You're listening to a demon tell you to make decisions. I don't think that's a wise decision. Or someone sit across the table and go, Yeah, I know the Bible said all, it says all those things, but, you know, it, it's been translated, it's done this, it's done that, and through history and through time. And my favorite is, Well, you know, that can't be a sin today because people eat bacon. And the Bible said not to eat pork. And so since it said that and that changed, well, this can't be a sin anymore. That's just a glaring observation that you don't know how to read. You can't read this book and take all of the food laws and preservation for a certain specific time in a group of people and then land in later on the New Testament and say, well, Paul doesn't mean that's really a sin. It can't be a sin. Because over here, God said this. If you put it in its proper context, it's called hermeneutics. It's one of my favorite classes I ever took in seminary, putting it in its proper context. I could do the exact same thing with all of human history. I can prove to you with historical fact and research that the atomic bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were a science experiment, had nothing to do with winning, the world, winning world War II. It's plenty of research. I convinced entire classes of students that we didn't land on the moon. I'd show them a Fox News tape, some little special. They'd run home and tell their parents we didn't really land on the moon. If you are only gonna put effort into your life and your faith, That you put on some special on television, then I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you. Because you're gonna let some fly by night person speak some crazy thing into your life, and you're gonna make life decisions based on that. That's sad. So for 14 weeks, just for 14 weeks, and then you can call me an idiot, and you can tell me to my face, and we'll move on. For 14 weeks, let's spend time in one letter, one book of the Bible. And see what Paul says about very practical things. Dads, how much discipline should you give your children? We'll discuss that. Wives, what do you do when your husband won't come to church with you? How do you function in that? We'll discuss that. How do you deal with false teachers in the church and outside the church? People who would come into the church and speak a false truth. How do you deal with them? How do you deal with other religions that say that they have the same truth that we have in Christ Jesus? How can you tell the difference? How can you tell when this person over here is speaking false truth? We're going to do that in Colossians. How I deal with my boss? I can't stand. How can my boss deal with me? Who he can't stand. It's all this. It's one of the most practical Christ centered dripping with truth letters of the Bible. And that's where we're going to be for 14 weeks. So to kind of wrap things up. Why do I care? Because in the last two months, um, I've sat down with at least two couples here and one couple in Indiana, and their marriages are dissolving. And that brings me to tears. In my own family, um, in my abornized extended family, we have addicts who are in denial. We have little kids being raised by these, and it just makes me weep. Like, I would love to adopt certain children. They have to be disciplined for a while, to correct them for a while, but it makes me weep. Like, it makes me weep that I have family just in my vicinity and in this church. And you go to hospital rooms, and you visit people, and there's no hope, or their life's a wreck. And they don't know what to do, and they're, they ask me for advice. And all I can do is say, Jesus. Jesus i don't just say that i mean i give him real but there's practicality but we have to center it in jesus christ we have to center it in him and paul's going to help us to do that because everything that we see is a distraction from the glory of god you're created for a purpose which is to bring glory to god forever and to enjoy him forever that's your purpose that's why you're alive is to bring glory to god and enjoy him forever And when all this stuff is coming around, it's a complete and total distraction. How easy is it for you to focus on your relationship with Jesus when life's crumbling all around you? It's not. So how do we put that center back on him? We make him central to every piece of our lives. You understand that the people you work with are there because God put you there for them. You're in the neighborhood you're in because God put you there to be there for them. God gave you the wife and the husband to be a a giant shining magnifying glass on your own selfishness and your own depravity and the two people together can work together to make much of Christ. He gives you children as a gift for 18-ish years in your home if they don't move out, maybe a little more. He gives you children for a season to grow them up and send them out. To be beacons of light in this world so we want to clear away distractions and most importantly we want to make sure that you understand that jesus reigns over your heart and not self when you go to any bookstore i know they don't exist very much anymore but if you go to hastings one of the largest selections in that place will be the self-help part and as christians we know at our core that we can't help ourselves we can do things and we can be wise but Christ is who helps us so you can read all the books I'm sure some of you are already got your new diet book out for the new year you can pick whatever one you want, you can pick whatever self-help technique, you can watch whatever doctor person is on TV, He was on a talk show when he probably should be helping people because he's a doctor or you can turn on TBN and see all these preachers and pastors with pearly white teeth and giant congregations and all, and all they're doing is saying just help yourself the best you now Tomorrow's a better day. Every day's a Friday. All these crazy books that you read and just say, "I'm good." It's like that. Do you remember? Do you remember? What, do you remember Saturday Night Live when it was good? When they had Guy Smalley, and he would sit in front of the mirror, which is crazy. He's now a senator, but you got Guy Smalley sitting in front of the mirror, and he's like, "I like myself. I'm good, and I'm happy." And he's like, he would just look at himself in the mirror and tell himself all these lies. And, and he would look at the camera and he'd weep. And he'd break down. But he'd look in the mirror. I'm so happy. I like myself and I'm good. And he'd turn around. Self-actualization is garbage. Self-esteem is garbage. Your esteem should come from Christ and Christ alone. That's what happened in the fall. When Adam and Eve grabbed clothes and they realized they're naked, it's because they start looking at each other for their esteem instead of looking to Christ. Well, to God, the Father. And so I hope as we walk through Colossians, you'll see that Jesus needs to reign over our lives, every piece of it, and not yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Um, We can come together. We can open up your word. And we can see um, this timeless truth that as much as we feel like we're in control, as much as we feel like we've got this all figured out, we're wrong. Lord, all research tells us that we really only have the social capacity to have about 150 relationships in our lives. What that means is that there are people in this room that have hundreds of hundreds of Facebook friends that aren't really their friends. And we need to realize that, Lord. We need to realize that we desperately need you. That in a time in this planet where we're more socially connected, people know more about our lives by pictures and things on, on the internet... But we are walking around lonely. or we can't turn off our phone for four or five hours and just be in the silence. It drives us crazy. And so I see that as our modern day problem that was happening in Laodicea. In Laodicea, they didn't have all the distractions we have, but they had this idea that they were, they were okay. They went to church. They did good things. But they never really put you in charge of their lives. And so we see that in Colossians, that Paul's going to drive us to the truth that we desperately need you to be center of everything, that you deserve all honor and all praise, and we should live lives that glorify you with every breath. But we're weak, Lord, and we need your help. So I pray that everyone in this room is tapped into the power source of the Holy Spirit, that we aren't just tasked with making it happen, we're tasked with humbly submitting our lives to you and watching you pour grace through every piece of our life. Help us to not fake it. Help us to be real with each other. Help us to see ourselves in your word so that we would stop stumbling around in the dark and we'd find our hope in you. We love you, Jesus. Amen.